Hey, what's up? You're listening to the podcast edition of The Cutting Room, the show where we talk to industry-leading marketing professionals about their content marketing philosophy, process, and pregame before they edit an article live. I am your host, Tommy Walker, and thank you so much for tuning in. My guest today is Amanda O'Callaghan, the Director of Content at Rubrik Inc., a data security and resiliency platform. And in our conversation today, we talk about getting pie in to build an amazing content team, fostering a culture of respect, and the impact philosophy studies has on creating good content. I hope you enjoy the show. Tell me a little bit about your content marketing philosophy. Yeah. So you said before, and I, you know, when you and I have talked before, I've talked about focusing on your audience and how everything that you do from a content perspective should be focused on what your audience wants and needs. And you told me, you know, quite a few people have said that before. And I started thinking about why that is that that comes up time and time and time again. And it's not because content professionals don't know these fundamentals. It's because that content is a team sport and you can't get buy-in on your content unless you have the approval of the subject matter expert, unless you have the approval of another stakeholder of design of your boss, you know, his boss or, you know, her boss. And so I think the reason that people keep coming back to audience as a center point, as a foundation of their philosophy, is that we're still fighting that battle. We're still fighting for the audience to be considered, not amongst ourselves so much, but amongst our inner teams that we're working with. Can you talk about that just a little bit more, please? Because I've definitely had that experience myself where we have to sort of advocate for the audience and talk about you know, bring their voice into the conversation overall, because it's not just about the products and marketing and sales and all of that, Mm -hmm. but really starting to reflect what it is that they want. Tell me a little bit about what that means for you. Yeah. What does it mean? Is your question like, what does it mean to reflect what the audience wants? Yeah. And to advocate. Okay. What it means to reflect what the audience wants is that, for instance, you know, if you're selling, I come from a tech marketing background. And so if you're selling, let's say, SaaS software or uh, software as a service, the tendency is internally to say, oh, we have this product, we have this feature, we are, you know, eight of the top 10 financial institutions use us, you know, we're doing this, we're that, you know, kind of really strutting your stuff. At the end of the day, and what I keep coming back to is that nobody cares. And the more that we can understand, and the more that our teams can understand that nobody cares, the better off you be. You have to be interesting in the face of obscurity. You know, so you have to be interesting. Let's say, you know, if you walked in the room and nobody knows who you are, you have to be interesting despite that. So you don't get any leeway with your name. It's true. And it's such a nihilistic approach, but it's also true. We've had a number of guests come on to the show. No, Praveen Kumar, one of our earliest guests, he said he keeps a sticky note on his monitor that says nobody cares. And yeah. Uh, Emily Triplett Lens from uh, right. Calendly, she said the same thing. And I think it's really fascinating. And then I just did a focus group and a lot of that kind of came to the forefront with the way that we did that. And I see Ronnie just came on and Ronnie was one of the people who gave the feedback. So I think it's really this interesting approach of like really 
nobody cares until you make them care, right? Mm -hmm. And what I'm curious about, right, because I know I've definitely taken this approach and I've done a lot of the research and I've talked to people and, mm -hmm. you know, had those one-on-one -on -one conversations is, first of all, one, how do you get people to care? One, mm -hmm. and then two, because you have the experience uh, working within the super large organizations, mm -hmm. how do you get that buy-in to surpass the red tape? Because I've worked in the really large organizations too, and it can be a lot of hurdles just to talk to a customer. Yeah. So how do you get people to care? I think how you get people to care is to know your audience intimately and to know what actually solves their problems. And so I think a lot of people do audience personas and study their audience and get a general idea of, you know, you know, quote unquote, what keeps them up at night. But it's not about just studying your audience and knowing some like basic facts about them. It's about studying your audience intently and in the way that you would like web stock your ex, you know, and figure out like what it is that they're doing, like what they care about, what kind of coffee they're drinking, you know, beyond what publications, like who they think is full of it, who they think is, you know, right on and know them intimately. So at the end of the day, you don't just have a paragraph of what your audience generally thinks about your product or your company or the situation at large, that you know them intimately, like you've Facebook, social media stalked them to where you speak their language and then come to it from that point of view. Now, the problem that you have in a very big organization is that it's sometimes nearly impossible to do because there are so many layers in a very large organization that I was like five steps removed from a customer when really you want to be zero steps removed from a customer and let have them let you know, like, I was just talking to somebody who was representative of one of our customers the other day. And basically he said this point that I thought was extremely interested is just table stakes for his audience. And so I would have never known that if I hadn't run into him. And so I can sit here all day and philosophize and come up with great content and think that my ideas are the greatest in the world. But that doesn't mean I won't swear on your show, but that doesn't mean anything if, if it doesn't resonate with the customer. And it doesn't matter what, you know, I'm sorry, but it doesn't matter what sales thinks. It doesn't matter what product marketing thinks. It doesn't matter whoever thinks, your boss thinks. It doesn't matter what I think. If it's not resonating with the customer at the end of the day, then it's crap. And what we're looking for overall is content market fit, which I don't think is nearly something that's talked about enough. We talk about product market fit and, mm -hmm. and all of that. But content market fit, I think, is essential and something that we should always be striving towards. I want to circle, throw something out there, too. One of the things that I've done in the past is I have an automation that I have set up where I will look at people who are sharing my competitors' blog posts and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then it will automatically add those people to a Twitter list. And I can see everything that that group of people is sharing Smart. beyond. Nice uh, flex, beyond... Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> what it does is it allows me to see not only where people are posting and what's grabbing their attention, 
but also to see the language of what's standing out to that group of people, right? How are they talking to each other? How are they, you know, what's going on in there? And what that's allowed me to do in the past is to reverse engineer the structure and the packaging, if you will, of the message. So then I can create stuff that is both familiar and unique, right? Yeah. Um, that's brilliant because that's one of those things. I don't know if you read Anne Hanley's last email, but she talked about jargon and how, you know, there's this crusade against jargon. Well, I'm so glad she wrote that because I've been thinking about it for a long time. There's good jargon and there's bad jargon. Good jargon is when you use a word or a way of talking to show belonging. And that's, that's brilliant. That's basically what you're doing with this automation that you have set up here. Bad jargon is when you're chest puffing and trying to be something that, yeah. you know, just to fit in. And so where you're coming from, that point of view really matters and will really help you resonate to your audience. And audiences are smart and they can sniff, they can sniff that sort of thing. So you better know yeah. what you're talking about. And it really does depend on the audience because like you're saying, like it's a shortcut in a lot of ways to show, hey, we know what's going on. If you're in the e-commerce world and someone says CAC, like everybody in that world knows what CAC is, whereas somebody mm-hmm. on the outside might be going, eh, but it depends on what that audience is. I want to yeah. take, uh, I want to circle back to something because we sure. talked about content being a team sport, but we kind of brushed on it. Yeah. Knowing what you know about your audience, how are you then taking that to build out a team structure uh, and, and getting those resources and buy-in that you need to build something that is truly great? Because I know that like, resourcing can be a very, very difficult thing, usually an uphill battle. Mm -hmm. So I want to take it a little bit different. When I say content's a team sport, usually when you're working with other content folks, you don't have to fight the battle with with audience um, and messaging and things like that. When I'm talking about content as a team sport, I'm talking about your stakeholders. Um, I listened to some of your previous guests where they had very large content teams and there was a, you know, blog team and a social media team and what have you. But unless those people are also subject matter experts, the team members that you're actually working with are the subject matter experts, um, the sales folks who are closest to the customer, the people who know the technology in my case, because I work, I primarily work with technology companies and we need each other. I am an expert at content. I'm not an expert in, you know, any number of technology things. And I can, nope. I, yeah, yeah, I can hack it and I can fake my way through, but not to a very deep level. Yeah. So I need my, my friends yeah. and yes. uh, product marketing <laughs> and product management. And I need their expertise to tell me, you know, what the product actually does you know, how it fulfills an audience need, um, those things. And they need me to market that message in different formats through different channels. And most importantly, to take an audience spin on it and make sure what they're telling me is uh, translated for an audience point of view. And you asked a question earlier about how you convince those people. And that's if I had to pick one of the most challenging things about my job as a, a content leader and a content creator, it would be getting those people on board. Yeah. I came from journalism where all I ever had to do was get my editor to sign off on it. 
And even then I thought it was hard. When you have to get five other people to sign off on it and you have several editors and those people don't come from a content background, that makes it, you know, exponentially harder. And so what you need to do is you need to do handholding, right? And not handholding in the way that you're sort of some sort of like going back to the like sort of respect thing that you talked about in the intro, not handholding in the way in that you are this content master and you are bringing down this knowledge from the mountain about how things should be done. But this person that you're working with has a message and it's a really important message. And you want to make sure that that message is delivered in the most appealing way. So to start out in the front every time and say, hey, this is my approach to content. I've you know, done some research on your topic and here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? And let them know that first you understand their idea. Second, what your approach to content is. And then third, the outcome of taking that approach to that content and how it will help them. I went to the doctor one time and there was something wrong with my voice, right? And I just went in there one time and I was like, oh, there's something wrong with my voice. It really hurts, you know, whatever. And before I knew it, my nose was anesthetized and I had this tube going down my nose into my throat. This is not what I came here for, right? I had no idea that that was going to happen. When you go into a meeting with somebody who isn't familiar with content and you just start saying, displaying your expertise and going through and editing, you're essentially sticking a tube down their throat without asking. And what you want to do is explain, make sure that you understand their problem and then take the steps to where they want the tube stuck down their throat in order you so you can solve their problems. And that's how you convince somebody to be on your team. That is a crazy and kind of gross analogy. Not going <laughs> to lie. That's okay. No, because it's perfect. It's exactly right. And I'm going to jump off of that culture of respect. And then we're going to move into, yeah, Ronnie says, very interesting analogy. Yeah, thanks, um, <laughs> it's true, though. It's like going into the dentist and then finding out, hey, you have to get a root canal today, right now. Yeah. I'm not even going to tell you why. And I'm going to jump on that culture of respect as well, because that applies not only to the people that you're writing with and the people you work with directly, mm -hmm. but indirectly as well. I know that I personally have had the mistake of going, I need, you know, the research shows that I need images in every blog post. So I need the design team to get on board with me so we can have images, you know, for every other thing. And the design team is going, well, that's not how we work. We work in sprints. Yeah. We can't do a daily sort of thing. So the respect part is not just about the editorial respect, but also respecting your coworkers and how they work and then mm -hmm. finding that middle ground. Mm -hmm. I want to take that into the next cornerstone question that we have, which is tell me a little bit about your process, both for planning, but also for getting those people on board to create something that is good and valuable to the reader. Yeah. How do you, your question is, how do you create something that's good and valuable to your reader with, with a team? What is your process? Yeah. What's both from, process? from the operational perspective, but then also from the planning perspective or planning then operation? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty traditional process. I mean, I think that you have to figure out what you have first, 
because you're, you know, unless you're starting completely from scratch, you have stuff that's already there. You already have content that's out there. You find out what you have, find out how it's performing, and then you find out what gaps you need to fill. And then you crowdsource from different organization, parts of your organization, like what's a story that needs to be told that hasn't been told? What audience does it serve? You know, what are our goals? You know, what kind of content will meet those goals? So it's a very nuanced process. From there, creating the actual content, I think usually ideas speak for themselves as if it's a good idea then, um, you know, multiple people will rally around it and um, help you create it. But there are times when you have, you know, I especially have seen this throughout my career where you have an idea for something that's crazy, maybe like a little bit outside the box and you have to, you know, you know, it'll work, but you don't have any proof that it'll work. You have to like create demand for it and get people excited with you, which is always I mentioned something being the hardest part of my career, and this may be the second thing, is to get people to do something that hasn't been done yet. Often the the feedback I'll get when I'll pitch an idea or something like that, it'll be like, okay, who of our competitors are are doing that? And I'll be like, nobody. And that's Mm -hmm. the point. You know, do you want to be doing something that everybody else is doing? So, you know, I think I kind of and I didn't want to go into too much detail about my exact content process. I think that because people, you know, basically know the overall, like how you create a content strategy, but it's finding those opportunities and to create something new that I think is the hardest part. All right. Let's talk about that then, because Ryan Law was on a couple yeah. of episodes ago and talked about the premise of good ideas. And yeah. I think what was great about that conversation, we were talking about it more from the audience perspective, coming up with great ideas from the audience perspective. Yeah. But if you're shopping an idea around internally, which is really important for these larger organizations, I've worked within the orgs and I've consulted with the orgs. We're like, mm-hmm. yeah, that exact conversation of who's doing this already. And it's like, we've done the research. We already we know that nobody's doing this, mm-hmm. but because we've done the research and we've talked to the people, that's why we know it will work because it's yeah. a good idea. What soft skills do you think you would need to develop to yeah. sort of sell those ideas or come up with a good premise that is, yeah, marketable within the organization? Yeah, yeah. What soft skills do you need to develop? I mean, I think it comes back to, again, respecting somebody's expertise. So first, mm-hmm. I think you need to listen as to why they think that it wouldn't work or what their experience has been in the past, empathize with that. Because just like convincing your audience, you need to do the same thing to convince your teammates and know intimately why they might be opposed to something. And then you need to build your argument, right? So before you even build the argument about why your audience should do whatever it is that you want them to do, you need to build an argument internally about why you should take that path. And so gathering information, maybe it's not somebody in your vertical or somebody in your industry that has taken that before, but taking examples, you know, I'm in tech, so from consumer and how that's worked. And, you know, maybe highlight different things that have worked in consumer and then have crossed over into a B2B space and show them examples 
mock up an idea of how that would work in your case and what that would look like. And then by showing them, you can convince them that will ultimately, you know, it might be something to take a chance on. Yeah, that's definitely been my experience as well, where you get the pre-buy-in to yeah. like take the ideas that everybody has and have those conversations and then consolidate them into a deck. I've realized that like the more I've advanced in my career too, it's it's always been everything comes down to your PowerPoint presentation. I know. We spend more time doing PowerPoint presentations than actually creating the content, but that's actually really important because you have to sell ideas. Yeah. Um, all right. But well, let's... You, a quick thing though, when you don't do that and people buy off on your initial idea and you get down the road and you don't have that PowerPoint, you don't have agreement on the thing. That's when you are on draft eight and somebody says, what, you know, let's blow this mm -hmm. thing up. And then you start all over and you don't have the document to go back to and say, we agreed on this because of all these different reasons. And I'm always somebody who just wants to grab the brass ring and be like, okay, come on, I'm excited about this. Let's go do it now. But when you don't do the fundamentals, then you're going to get caught in the end. Yeah, Ronnie says, real talk, been down that road and learned the hard way too many times. I would love to hear a story about that, Ronnie, if you can put that in there while we're talking about this, because I think it's all too common. And it's one of those things that is definitely not talked about enough, because mm -hmm. a lot of the advice out there is just have good ideas. It's like, no, you can have all the good ideas in the world. But if you don't have that sort of single source of truth to at least go back and say, you know, do a quarterly review and say, this is what we thought. This is how it's changed. Mm -hmm. Right. Now you have that. And I love the idea of like mocking up and showing from different areas and pulling your resources because everybody says creativity is just a mashup of other ideas. So, yeah, I think that's yeah. Perfect. Mm -hmm. um, Great artist deal. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. All right. So <laughs> we're already at the 124 mark, which tell me a little bit about your pregame when it comes to that. So you've, you've got the good idea. You've started to put it into action. Now, yeah. tell me about your pregame, and we'll focus this in more on an article, when it comes to editing. So you've got the idea. What are you doing from taking idea to fingertips? And what's that process in between? Yeah. So usually I've heard you ask this question. It's usually about what your pregame is when you're editing, right? Yeah. Um, do you want to know that or about yes. when I put pen to paper? or yes. fingers to, to keyboard. When you're editing. Yeah, totally. I am comforted in the fact after listening to multiple episodes of this that everybody thinks they have ADHD. Uh, <laughs> I think that's hilarious. And also, and then they think that they're the only one. I think that's comforting and pretty much think that the same thing. And the idea is to focus solely on that piece and make sure that you're not getting distracted. So I have my work Spotify playlist. And it's hilarious because my work Spotify playlist is all, there's different things, but I've gravitated towards just, you know, different colors of noise, white noise, brown noise, blah, blah, blah. So when I got my Spotify year in review, it was just songs that were like, <laughs> and then it was like, here's this banger from like 2012. <laughs> You know, and it was a lot different than every other ones. But all that to say that I have to have my headphones in and I have to have, you know, well, obviously have the document up and make sure that I'm not being distracted. 
I go ahead and I'll read the document in its entirety. And I have heard from a few different people on your show here that they're able to go and read the document in uh, its entirety without editing it. I can't. I can't do that. I have to go through and if I see something like a there, there, there mistake, I'm correcting it right there because I can't move on until that's done. Then what I'll do pretty much is I'll take the document and I'll make notes to myself as I'm going. These might not be writer facing notes and, you know, customer facing notes, I should say, because the writer is your customer here, but there'll be notes to myself be like, huh, this sticks out to me. Let's see if it's buttoned up on the way down. And so I'll go through the document and do that. And I'll make correct little grammatical mistakes, make notes to myself, highlight things that I want to come back and do later. Once I go ahead and do that, then I'll go through a second time and see and follow up on those notes, do sentence level edits, construction level, phrase level edits, and things like that. My pregame, though, is pretty simple to go back to your original question. Headphones in, you know, make sure I don't have any distractions, maybe a glass of water, and then get to it. By the way, you had me red just a minute ago. <laughs> I don't know if you can see, but I was red. with, And we're definitely clipping that for the <laughs> promo for the replay. Yeah, I, I'm actually very similar, I think, in that regard, where I'm actually a super inefficient editor when it comes to, I can't read, and I, I'll actually make notes of where I disengage from a piece, because mm -hmm. if I'm the first reader and I'm disengaging, and it's my job to read this thing, God knows mm -hmm. what's going to happen when somebody's going to click off. So, yeah, no, I think that's fantastic. All right, we are at the 128 mark. We're actually a little bit ahead of schedule. And that's it for the podcast edition of The Cutting Room. If you'd like to watch while Amanda edits live, click on the link in the show notes and you'll be brought directly to the edit on our YouTube channel. And if you'd like to attend the next live session, sign up for our email list at thecontentstudio.com forward slash The Cutting Room or by following the link in the show notes. Thank you again, and we'll see you in the next one. <laughs>